Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'm speaking with Mark Palazzotti about his new book, Sympathy for the Traitor, a Translation Manifesto. Mark Palazzotti has translated more than 50 books, including works by Patrick Mariano, Gustave Flaubert, Raymond Roussel, Marguerite Duras, and Paul Virilio. Publisher and Editor-in-Chief at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, he's also the author of Revolution of the Mind, The Life of André Breton, and other books. Mark Palazzotti, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the MIT Press podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Now, your book, Sympathy for the Traitor, a Translation Manifesto, uh, looks at the history of translation both as a subject and as a personal reflection on your time as a professional translator. And it also helps readers on how to appreciate the translator's art. These three topics all intertwine, but there was one was there one particular one that motivated you to start this project? Yes, in fact, there were there were several. Um, one of them was that I, like a number of translators, have long felt that the uh, work of translation and what a translator does uh, is not very clearly understood by uh, even people who read translations. Uh, in other words, it, it often seems to a number of even sophisticated readers that translation is largely a, uh, a process of taking finding a word that is the equivalent of the foreign word and just simply uh, coming up with the best equivalent, whereas in fact it's much more complex than that and to my way of thinking, it really does result in the creation of a new work of art based on the other. That's one. The other is that in academia in particular, uh, in the discipline called translation studies, I've often, been, um, I've often been made rather impatient by a discourse that seems to me very far removed from what I consider to be the essentials of the art and craft of translation, uh, and that has very little to do with the practice of translation, and that in fact even oftentimes seems to go as far as almost denying the uh, validity or the possibility of translation. And so this book was really meant to be um, a discussion, a reframing, and to some extent a corrective. So in those uh, works in translation studies that are beginning to question that, I have to ask, because I imagine listeners are asking themselves this as well, are the people that are doing this, are they active translators, or are they one step removed in academia and studying translation, but not really translators themselves? I guess, are people that are in your boat as a professional translator, are they also, it would seem odd that they would be questioning the fact that translation could even happen. I'm just trying to get a sense of if this is a situation in which academics who aren't doing it are coming to conclusions about what it is. Um, yeah, that's actually a great question. It's, it's a little bit of the, you know, the old joke, if you can't do teach. Um, it's, you know, I, I, that would be unfair. Uh, these people are very intelligent. They've thought a lot about this. There are some, some uh, extremely uh, thoughtful pieces. But to answer your question, most of them are not practicing, practicing translators. Um, and the ones who are seem to be translating according to a uh, philosophical or theoretical agenda that has very little to do with trying to create the best work in English out of a foreign work. Um, I mentioned in the first question that this is a book about the history of translation. And for people that maybe really haven't thought about it, I mean, to me, when I first thought about it, it was like, well, obviously, the, the first translations that came to my mind were the Romans who translated the Greeks during the empire. But you also point out mm -hmm. that um, early translations of the Bible, uh, moving the, from Greek and Hebrew to uh, Latin, were a little challenging. It seems that the Bible is is one of the central text in this question of translation, and I know that from other shows I've done for publishers that that translation into English, the King James Bible, was not only a very important translation that occurred, but for some people a really dangerous translation. Um, is it fair to say that when we look at the history of translation, particularly into English, that the King James Bible kind of stands as the lodestone for how translation, really where the debate started in English? 
Um, I don't know that it's quite where the debate started, although you're absolutely right. It has been a lodestone and it's been one of the most influential translations of all time. Uh, the, the number of phrases and, uh, and words that have come into the English language through the King James Bible is just phenomenal. You can look it up online. I won't, I won't rehearse the meeting here. But um, it, it, even I was surprised at how many common phrases originate with the translators of the King James Bible. But in fact, Bible translation and the debates about Bible translation go back much farther than that, uh, really back to St. Jerome, uh, who was the, the translator, of course, of the Vulgate. And he was the one who initially translated the Bible uh, from, from the Hebrew into Latin. And rather than using the Greek text, uh, the, the Septuagint, uh, which had been the authorized text and the standard text for, uh, for quite some time, um, and this was considered to be the definitive text because it was, uh, according to legend at least, the Septuagint had been um, uh, translated by 70 scholars in 70 days, uh, completely independently, and all of them came up with exactly the same text, and therefore this was proof that they were inspired by God. So it had incredible authority, and Jerome was really the first one to question the authority of this text on the basis of the fact that it simply didn't read very well. So even though it had the spiritual imprimatur of the church, it really wasn't very fun to read. Um, so uh, um, Jerome approached this really as a poet and saying, you know, that there are in the original beauties of language that this translation simply does not convey. And so I'm going to go back to the source and I'm going to translate it into Latin, which was the vernacular of the time. Uh, and make it more accessible to the common person, to the common worshiper, but also make it a text that one actually wants to engage with. Well, that all sounds perfectly logical and reasonable. The problem was that it ran afoul of the orthodoxy, and in particular of August, uh, Saint, the future St. Augustine, uh, who was the, the, uh, the monitor of all things uh, uh, holy, and or at least uh, liturgical, and uh, he was completely incensed about this because he thought that if you were to have two different translations, you were going to end up having a schism in the church. And in fact, this is something that happened. The Vulgate, of course, eventually superseded the Septuagint. It became the, the authoritative text. And then centuries later, around the 16th century, you have Martin Luther and you have um, uh, William Tyndall. And uh, these are another attempt to take the Bible and to turn it into a language that is accessible to the common person, uh, rather than the sort of um, uh, a text for the for the uh, the happy few. Uh, happy few, therefore, regulated by the clergy, therefore, uh, an authoritative an authority that can tell you what you should or shouldn't think of what the Word of God says. And this, of course, again was. Um, uh, very controversial with the church because their authority was being undermined, they felt, and, and sometimes even directly. Um, Tyndale, in his in his um, uh, introduction to his translation of the New Testament, goes as far as to call the clerics malicious and wily hypocrites. So you can imagine how well that played. Um, and he was, in fact, uh, uh, executed because of this. Um, but the, the irony is that in the following century, not very long after, uh, Tyndale is, is executed at the beginning of the 16th century. At the beginning of the 17th, the very beginning of the 17th, you have King James, who commissions this new translation, which is specifically supposed to reproduce the beauties of the language, and not only reproduce them, but in fact invented quite a few that are still part of our language, English, today. And the intent was, in fact, to do exactly what Tyndale had been 
executed for and that uh, Luther had been censured for in the previous century, which was to bring the Bible to the common worshiper. You know, listening to that question, I was, it made me think about uh, a work that really hasn't, or at least to my knowledge, I, I can imagine has been an issue of having translated, and that's the Quran. But you didn't also later in the book talk about a, issue, a mistranslation when it came to Salman Rushdie's the, uh, Satanic Verses, which again, the question of translation then has right. real-world consequences beyond just literary discussion. Absolutely. I mean, translation, uh, you know, I, I think some people tend to think of it as the province of word nerds. Um, but in fact, translation can have very far reaching consequences. And in the book, I talk about several mistranslations, one of them indeed being the translation into Arabic of the, of the satanic verses. Um, and what happened there was that the translator, by translating the phrase literally, in fact, not only did a disservice to the text, but did a disservice to Rushdie, who was then put under fatwa and had to go into hiding and uh, and was put under under a death threat. Uh, and what happened was that the verse, the satanic, the so-called satanic verse that Rushdie is referring to in the title is, in fact, a part of Quranic lore. And it refers to several excised verses of the Quran that uh, Muhammad understands have been dictated by Satan and are therefore uh, removed. Now, in Arabic, those are referred to as uh, what is it the the, um, uh, the the bird verses, um, not the satanic verses. So, by using the English term, which was in fact a term uh, made up by or, uh, English language Orientalists in the nineteenth century, by using that term and translating it directly into Arabic, what the translator was essentially conveying was that. Rushdie was saying that the entire Quran had been dictated by Satan. And of course, that's not at all what that verse, what that title meant. But because of that, it was interpreted as a great blasphemy, and Rushdie was condemned, uh, and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So that's one instance. Uh, another one is uh, World War II, where there's a, um, uh, a good indication that when um, uh, the uh, the emperor of Japan was asked to surrender right before the end of the war, instead of saying yes or no, he basically said, when a bunch of journalists asked him, what are you going to do? He said, essentially, I need a moment to think about it. Let's, let's reflect. Well, the word for let's reflect in Japanese, if taken out of context, can also basically mean I'm ignoring you. And that's how it got back to Truman. And uh, several days later, the atom bomb is dropped on Hiroshima. So these these uh, questions of translation can have enormous consequences. Now, some people might be listening to this on iPod, iPad, their computer, and thinking to themselves, you know what? Well, this is all really great to talk about as far as things that have happened in translation in the past. But all I got to do is open up a browser and type things into Google Translate, and boom, I get a translation. And so maybe they're thinking, well, this is a question of are the days of the professional translator numbered because artificial intelligence and machine translation are going to be able to do it all. This is a topic that you address in the book. Could you tell me your thoughts? Absolutely. Um, you know, it depends on what you mean by translation. If it's simply a matter of translating information, Google is great. I've used it myself. It's wonderful if you happen to be in a foreign country where you don't speak the language and you need to go into a, pharma a pharmacy and ask for aspirin. You know, you look it up on your phone. If you, even if you can't pronounce it, you show the pharmacist, you get your aspirin. I'm all for it. When it comes to literature, I don't believe that that is going to happen, at least not in any time, any time in the near future. And I'll tell you why. Because, again, translation is not about information. Translation is not about word equivalences. 
Translation is about understanding the deep structure and the underpinnings of what is going on in literary text, what the author meant to do, how the author did it, how that can be conveyed, what that means in the author's original culture, what the resonances are, what the effect on the reader is, understanding all of that, incorporating all of that into yourself as the translator and co-writer, and then trying to figure out ways of recreating and re-representing that in another language, another culture, sometimes another time period. Uh, you know, with all those differences, you still nonetheless need to make a text that on the one hand represents the effect on the reader the way the original text affected the original reader, and yet at the same time can speak to a reader today in a different culture, a different language, a different context, and a different time period. And that takes a lot of choice. It takes a lot of subjectivity. It takes a certain amount of talent. Uh, and it's something that to this day, uh, even with the advances in AI and in the, with the advances in computer technology, we are nowhere close to being able to have. And even the people who are proponents of machine translation, and I'm talking about not at the beginning of it, but now, would tell you that this is not something that machine translation is set up to do. Um, machine translation is great for certain kinds of standardized documents. Uh, it's great for, uh, you know, set phrases. It's great for information. It's great for vocabulary. And even then you have to be careful. But it is not made for translating art. It's not made for translating literature. Um, and the the idea that you can do that is, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's dangerous, but I think it's, it's, it's a little bit dispiriting uh, because what that suggests is that it... it uh, it suggests a view of translation that, again, is a kind of a rote dictionary work, whereas, in fact, it's a much, much more creative, much, much more engaged process than that. Um, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that Google is not a dictionary. It's a search engine. And if people go on Google, and you can certainly, trans you know, you can take a phrase from Proust, and you can put it into Google, and you see what it comes up with. Well, the thing is that sometimes you will get a perfectly reasonable translation, Sometimes you will get a translation that is pretty much word for word what the published English translation by a translator is. And sometimes you'll get the kind of gibberish that you could get if you were reading a, you know, a badly translated instruction manual in a, in a foreign appliance. The reason is that Google is basically just looking for clues. It's looking for what's already out there. So if something like Proust, uh, the translation of Proust by C.K. Scott Moncrief has already been entered into somebody's database or is available online, Google is smart enough to recognize that the opening phrase of this, this work in French corresponds to the opening, work of, uh, opening phrase of that work in English. And it'll find it and it'll bring it out to you. But try doing it with something that's a little bit more obscure and you end up with a phrase that is completely off the mark. Um, because that's just not how Google works. It's not, it doesn't have the creative thinking. All it can do is go out and find existing equivalents that it thinks are the ones that that match. Uh, and to me, one of the, um, one of the great examples of this, uh, is, um, the, uh, an attempt some years ago to, um, take a phrase, uh, uh, the, 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 the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And they fed it into a computer in Russia and basically asked it to translate it. And it came back with a phrase that I'm sure to its circuit seemed perfectly logical, which is, um, the, the meat is good, but the vodka is rotten. No, the vodka is good, but the meat is rotten. Completely different, you know, completely different reading of what that, of what that, um, phrase meant. I think there was another way, a similar example was, uh, somebody in Japan, uh, took the phrase out of sight, out of mind, and it came back with the equivalent of 
confined to an insane asylum. <laughs> By the way, the uh, the the vodka is strong, but the meat is rotten. is is now the official way we use that phrase in our house. Uh, <laughs> I told my wife that. Um, well, I said in the first question that, that some of the topics intertwining and talking about help to help readers appreciate the translator's art. So I will give you an example for the last question, from my own personal history, and you can help me decide whether I want to go back and do this. Uh, back when I was an undergraduate, I oh, I was taking a class on English literature from. I want to say 1680 to 1750. And if for some reason, Professor Bell, you're out there, I love the class. Uh, <laughs> if he's listening to me. Um, but we had to read Alexander Pope's translation of the Iliad or part of it. And I, I mm-hmm. couldn't get through it. I thought Alexander Pope was very clever, enjoyed the rape of the lock. But when I read the Iliad, my eyes just crossed. I thought, oh man, I can't get through this. Now, I like classical language and I like classical literature. And I read Fagel's translation of the Iliad when it came out. And I was just blown away. I was like, this is amazing. So, I like the Iliad. Should I go back and read Pope? And if I do, do you have any suggestions for me on how I might be able to appreciate Alexander Pope? It's one of those things where sometimes when you have a work of art, you just like one person's translation and you just don't like another person's translation. Well, that's absolutely true. Um, And of course, when there are numerous translations to choose from, I mean, first, look, I'm not one to say that a translation is a priori better than another. I think that having a choice is you know, a multiplicity of choices, I think is a great thing. If it were up to me and someone were to ask, I'd say, go back and read all of them. Of course, with the Iliad, you could really have your work cut out for you. But um, but the fact is, if you were to go back now and read Pope's translation, I would say basically you do it because you want to go back and read Pope, not because you want to read Homer. If you want to read Homer, you are much better off with Hegel or, or some of the others who have translated it more recently. Um, and the fact, to, the thing to remember, too, is that translations, even more than the original work, are perishable items. You know, they are dependent on their time. They're dependent on the culture in which they were made. Uh, you know, there is a certain immutability about the original because it has that, that particular authority. Um, you know, Shakespeare will still try to read Shakespeare in his original language. But the Shakespeare that was translated more or less contemporaneously um, into other languages would seem completely silly today if, we, if, the, if a translator were trying to translate Shakespeare that way. Um, or to take the, the opposite tack, uh, Montaigne was translated in more or less his day by John Florio. I've read those translations. They're very elegant and they're very interesting, but they sound awfully florid and they sound very much of the time. There are much better translations to my more modern ear of Montaigne that have been done closer to my own time, and I enjoy them more because they speak to me in the idiom that I understand and the idiom that I'm used to, just as Montaigne of his time spoke to his reader of the time that, that, that he was writing it. So I think that, you know, translations do get superseded. One day figures will seem really old fashioned and, you know, and, and your, your children will, or their children will say, God, who can go back and read this? It sounds so fusty and fuddy duddy. Let me read, uh, you know, Zorks because it, it sounds much more like something that I understand. And that's, that is one of the wonderful things about translation. There's, there is no definitive one. There are some that are better than others for sure. But, um, but there are, they are going to be superseded. Um, and in a way, this also brings back a, a question that you, you asked earlier um, about the question of um, fidelity, which, of course, is one of, you know, and how many how much liberty should one take or how much uh, should one um, try to adhere to the original, quote unquote, whatever that means. And that, of course, is one of the great debates from the very beginning as well. Part of it depends on what it is that you're trying to do. So if, for example, you are translating the Bible, we have multiple examples, and I cited a few of them before, where somebody taking liberties can get himself into really odd water because that was supposed to be the word of God and you didn't mess around with it. But if you're translating 
literature, secular literature, and if your aim is to try to create an effect that is in some way equivalent or in some way comparable, let's say, to the effect that the original author had on his or her audience, then you do need to make certain adaptations. You do need to make certain, um, uh, I wouldn't call them concessions, you need to be creative at certain times. And you need to do it very sensitively, and that's where the art comes in. Not everyone can do it. Um, you know, I, I, I think um, it's um, it's a matter of feeling the text. Not not everyone, even very good translators, should not translate every text. You know, you, you can sometimes you really understand what's going on and you feel that you get it and you can convey it. I've had plenty of cases where I've read a text that I have absolute respect for, but I've had to turn the job down because I just know that I'm, I'm not going to be able to do the job on this book that I that I would expect of myself um, uh, to do. I, I don't have the feel for it. So, you know, that that's a, an open-ended question, but I hope that's the beginning of an answer to it. Mark Palazzotti, the author of Sympathy for the Trader, a Translation Manifesto. Thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thanks very much, Chris. I enjoyed it. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2018. The MIT Press. All rights reserved.